0: Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Cam Curry, who's leading the Curry Metals and Mining Group at Canaccord Genuity. Cam has over 30 years' experience specializing in precious and base metals, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I know it's been a long time coming. Cam, I think that the best way for us to start off was a bit of an introduction from yourself, and we'll go from there.
1: Okay, Corey, thank you so much for having me. It's always an honor, and it's always great to, I guess, you know, share insights to the industry because as we all know this industry is all about learning and my experience and my relationships i always like to try to help people along in their pursuit in this uh, industry so uh, thank you thanks for having me
0: great well where i want to start is i actually want to take us all the way back to the beginning of your career there's a couple of reasons why one i think it's fascinating i love the history of our capital markets in and around the mining industry and some of the characters that are there But I think it's also going to frame our discussion for later on where we're talking about the market and the cycles that we're going through and precious metals, frankly. So I want you to take us back all the way to the beginning, because I understand you got into the business 30 some years ago by meeting Peter Brown in Whistler. Can you bring us back there to the start of your career and what it's been like to, to learn and to grow and to work with some of the individuals in our industry?
1: that's going back in time. I find myself sometimes looking back and going, I can't believe it's been 35 years. Yeah, but anyway, I graduated from the University of Toronto in Commerce. And prior to that, I met Peter Brown at Worcester, as you mentioned. And it's a funny story how it all started. I was serving up at Worcester and he said to me, so what are your plans? And I said, well, I'm I'm going to university. Where are you going? I said, I'm going to U of T. Well, what are you going to do after that? And I looked at him and I said, well, then I'm going to come work for you. And he kind of looked at me and says, well, how do you figure that? I said, well, Peter, you're in the investment business, and I think I'm a great investment. And I can't believe I actually said that. But I said that, I turned on my heels, walked away, and about five or six steps later, I looked back, and there he was looking over his chair, just looking at me. So at the end of the night, he looked at me and says, you're on. So I finished university just after the crash of 87. And of course, nobody was hiring on Bay Street or Wall Street or House Street. I turned up at Peter's office, and he said, well, my word's my honor. And so he stuck me in research and when nobody was hiring and I spent a couple of years there and I realized at that point, you know, I was doing this research, loved it, but I really, really, really loved the passion of of the sales side of things and the wealth side of things. And so that's when I transitioned into being an investment advisor and very, very fortunate because at the time, Canada was very much a mining country and our culture at Canarim at the time was a mining oriented firm. And so I was very fortunate to be in the envelope with all these mining icons that I met through research. That I'd met through Peter Brown. And so it was probably the best platform to be in. And so, and of course we're starting at the bottom of the market because I mean, it crashed. So it's not like you're entering a market that was frothy. I mean, everyone was left for dead. And so it was a great time to learn. And so my desire for the mining space was in rooted from the culture of the firm. Now I did get involved with high tech biotech and, and that, but I found myself always gravitating back to the mining opportunities because they present themselves such great investment opportunities at different cycles that I just had to focus on them. And then you know, later on in my career, I made it my
0: specialty. I really wanna talk about the cycles and your experience going through, but if you were to look back over the last 35 years and working with some of these individuals, what have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an investment advisor and potentially as an investor and a professional?
1: There's so many lessons. I mean, I'm learning lessons every day these days still. To think it's not perpetual and you're not learning. And I think you're living in a vacuum and you're you're not really servicing your clients well because you're always, always learning. But again, it goes back to, well, principles, morals, values, and ethics. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, you've got to just, this industry is, is plagued with a lot of people that can can skew you because of greed of money so you've got to stay very grounded in that respect and i also early on in my career I, i took verbatim people who were perceived as intelligent and direction leaders as you just take their word for it and that's what the reality was but over time you realize that everyone has opinions and in bull markets all those opinions conjugate into herd mentality And in bear markets, it's the same way. You get negative mentalities and they herd in the same direction. And I think one of the biggest lessons I learned is when the mass herd is in one direction, you wanna have your antennas up in in terms of being concerned. And inversely, when the mass herd is against you, that's when you sharpen your pencils and and you realize there's opportunities. I remember hearing one time, uh, I think about this all the time, every once in a while, opportunities come along in life that are so low risk and so high reward. But nobody's paying attention. That's one of the environments I really seek out because that's where the best opportunities are. And as I say that, it's one of the most difficult, most challenging places to put your investment dollars in because everyone's looking at you uh, as if you're doing something that's off center, because everyone else is chasing everything else.
0: I think that we saw that as an example with oil and gas and the energy industry. Everyone was so hot, ESG. If it's coming from the ground as a fossil fuel, then it's absolutely a negative, short. Sure get rid of it, get it out of your portfolios, then all of a sudden the street wised up and realized how much value was there. And all of a sudden the money's gotten there. I'm not an investment advisor by any means. I suspect and have a feeling that people are starting to wise up to the potential precious metals right now. And, and I actually want to use that as a segue to understand more of your model and what you're aiming to do with yeah your approach to, to precious metals
1: well you say that people are warming up to it and I would actually say on the contrary I was thinking about this the other day at two o'clock in the morning I do some of my best thinking in the middle of the night I was thinking about how is it that we're gold 2000 and granted we have you know the, now the noise in the Middle East but gold to 2000 all-time highs near its all-time highs it's been here for over a year and yet the equities aren't reflecting that and you know I go back in chapters, in the past, and I remember 2000, the dot-com bubble, and I was banging the table about how stupid valuations were. And at that time we were buying you know gold companies at $5 an ounce in the ground, whereas traditional values were $50 an ounce in the ground. So the dot-com bubble burst, everything went down, and then it bounced 40%. At that time gold was around 3, 350 in 2002, and still nobody was paying attention to the gold stocks. And again, going back to what I was reflecting on the other night, we just had this big bounce in U.S. equities and we're looking at gold where it is and no one's paying attention to the gold equities. Gold ETF holdings in the United States have gone from 3,400 to 2,700 tons here in the last nine months. And yet gold's at all-time highs, again, because eastern central banks and eastern buyers keep on buying. And we're in a situation similar to 2002 where everyone was back chasing the shiny objects of what collapsed in 2000. And so all the money's still going back there. And it wasn't until late 2002 when all those stocks continued to go down like we're seeing right now in this correction and people realized that wasn't working anymore and then in late 2002 the US dollar rolled over gold broke out through 400 and then the money flows were looking for something that hadn't performed or looking for something cuz everything else wasn't performing and i think that's where we are right now so you mentioned that you know people are warming up to it well in terms of gold equities gold funds have redemption still there's money flows coming out. And again, you know, it's it's a scenario where, you know, back when I was in the business, in the beginning of the business, it was standard, you put 5, 10% of your money into gold, right? And in Canada, every investor had a weighting of metals and mining. Well, today, there's very, very few people that run a business like mine. Because a lot of investors, speculators, chase digital, chase cannabis, chase all these other narratives that present themselves in this last bull market. And so there's an absence of investors even looking in our space. So going back to my comment, every once in a while opportunities come along that are so low risk and so high reward, nobody's paying attention. Well, gold's at all time highs and yet the gold equities are trading as if gold was at 1400 because nobody's paying attention. So that's the setup as to where we are. And what's amazing though, is when you look outside of the Western world and the mentality, you go to Singapore last week or two weeks ago, And physical delivery of gold was $70 over spot because that part of the world sees the value of gold. And again, the Western world doesn't look at gold as the rest of the world, but gold is a reserve currency. And it's the only reserve currency that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. And with government debt levels where they are, US at 33 trillion, the stewardship, the political stewardship, the printing presses, that are underway amongst the central bankers. I mean, the Fed balance sheet's $8.5 trillion. When you look at your $100 bill, the U.S. dollar, that's what you're buying. Now, you guys just have a question. What are you doing to protect your exposure to U.S. dollars? But people aren't thinking that way. It's coming.
0: Yeah. Okay. You mentioned 2000, 2002, and the old adage that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. What similarities and contrasts are you seeing between past cycles you've been through and your experience as an investment advisor? Well, I think
1: one of the more glaring ones right now is the, the U.S. dollar index. Back then, when gold went from so what 350 up to 850 and then came down and then went to 2000 after the financial crisis, the move from 350 up to 850 was U.S. dollar index going down. Dollar index went into a bear market for four years. And I see a setup like that very similar to where we are right now. And the Dixie hit 160 on a high a year ago when they were raising rates because they gave us a yield chase. And then it broke down below 100 here recently and then it rallied back up to 106. And I see the US dollar rolling into a bear market here now, for multiple reasons. I mean, we're, first of all, they weaponized the US dollar because of the Russia Ukraine war. You're also seeing a global move against or not using U.S. dollars. U.S. dollar transactions have gone from 60 to 42% in the last 20 years. And that's one reason why the BRICS nations and the expansion of the BRICS is taking place is because all these countries don't want to be beholden to U.S. policy and U.S. dollars as a reserve currency because it has implications for their own domestic management and their own domestic financial position. You look at Turkey, for example, right now they just raised rates to 35% because they have obviously their problems. But one of the problems, if you are in Turkey and you have your debt denominated in U.S. dollars, it's been extremely painful. But if you had a position in precious metals, it protected you. So that's an extreme example. But the value of of gold amongst central banks around the world is getting a greater, greater value. That's why all these eastern banks keep on buying and buying gold. But the Western investor isn't paying attention to this. Case in point, the gold ETS have gone from 3,400 down to 2,700 tons. Okay, so gold's at all time highs, and so people think, well, ETFs in the United States. How come gold's where it is? You have to look across the water and see what these autocracies are doing, and they're buying gold.
0: Yes. Well, I'm curious, man. So many questions are coming to mind already. And one is that you've listed a number of different factors that you're following, different scenarios that are playing out, different indexes you used, you know, as data points. Do you have a mental model that you continue to go to to identify things and update? How do you approach your analysis when looking at potentially the, the opportunity here?
1: I say to people in interviews and clients that I'm a real student of macroeconomics and politics. And the macro trend and the stage that's set right now has been in the making for a number of years. I mean, we've had the bond market going up for 40 years, stock market going up for 40 years. Ever since 81, when we had interest rates at 20%, we've been a declining interest rate curve and everything got magnified after the financial crisis because interest rates were brought to zero. And so if you look at it, we had a period globally where interest rates were zero for 10 years. In fact, there was over $15 trillion of negative yield interest rates around the world. I mean, the German 10-year Bundes was a negative 0.4%. Still to this day, I mean, from a textbook perspective, I haven't seen any books written about negative interest rates, but... Anyway, to make a long story short, you hold interest rates at zero for an extended period of time, you're gonna create bad investment behavior. And so what we've seen here is asset appreciation has created a wealth effect because money was free. As people got more comfortable and confident with that, they felt that that was the new norm. And when you hold interest rates at zero, any NPV or or multiple is exponential because there's no way you put a value matrix when your base denominator is zero. Case in point, the bubble of 2022. And I was pounding the table with my clients with their other portfolios. I don't manage that part of their portfolio, telling them that, you know, these stocks, valuations, these stocks were absurd, absurd. Like Zoom at $500 a share because of COVID, you know, no valuation matrix makes sense whatsoever. The stock's $60 a share. It was endless. So my foundation goes back to zero interest rates for 10 years, has mispriced assets and, and has led consumers and investors into valuation matrix that far make economic sense. And so the tailwinds that perpetuated that going up back 16 months ago have now flipped. And now they're all headwinds. Now you have inflation. You had the biggest percentage change in history and in interest rates. Okay. You have a global slowdown taking place. U.S. is taking longer to slow down because they have 25-year, 2.5% mortgages. So it's muting the effects on the consumer. But look at the headwinds we're going into. And so this global slowdown with inflation stagflation, where do you put your money? And so going back to, you know, reading and learning and dissecting, on January 1st, 2022, Mercer Group, who's an advisor to 15 trillion dollars of global assets, and in the traditional model 60/40 bond equities, right? Well, at that time they came out and they rebalanced and they added 5% recommended weighting to precious metals because of the economic headwinds they foresaw and the risk of stagflation. If you had followed that recommendation as a barbell insurance policy of gold, it would have protected you because gold's up 10%. Whereas last year, bonds were down 18%, equities around 18%. And I would argue greater than that if you took out the seven behemoths that influence 34% of the performance of the S&P 500, right? So in this year, the S&P is down 10% if you take them out. And of course, bonds are still down. And yet gold's at all-time highs. So, you know, there's people that are paying attention to the performance, but the average investor, you ask most funds in the United States, they're waiting in gold right now is one quarter of 1%. So all these factors are behind us. And being the foundation of all this, to go back on your initial question, was in 10 years, we went from global debt of $200 trillion to $300 trillion at a time when interest rates were free. Now you have a three hundred trillion dollar global debt in governments, corporations, and individuals, and the burden of that debt is very significant in relative terms. Because it's the biggest percentage change in history, and so that debt now is weighing on all three of those entities. And so what that's doing is putting greater pressure on the values of the assets, because the, what's the NPV of a real estate project when you go from a two percent cap rate, you know, to a five percent cap rate? You know, you look at anything, you do an interest rate change like that, and the valuation of the asset depreciates. But now you have the weight of that debt sitting on the asset. That, to me, is the biggest biggest risk. And that, again, going back to a government that has $34 trillion in debt, $2 trillion increase this past year. Interest costs alone are almost a $1 trillion, and they depend upon foreigners to buy U.S. treasuries. And next year, there's over $7 trillion of treasuries that have to be refinanced in this interest rate environment. You tell me where the upside is in the U.S. dollar at this point.
0: Wow. Yes. Cam, too many questions that come to mind. One is, do you see with the BRICS countries coming on, you mentioned the weaponizing of the U.S. dollar. And could they put that back to the U.S., the BRICS countries? And what would the implications of that be? Do you have a probability to that? Do you see confrontation coming?
1: First of all, the BRICS and the expansion of the BRICS, if you look at the countries and their political stances and their fiscal houses, there's no unified platform or or a common currency that's going to come out of that. And people have talked about that. I don't see the economics of that. You have Iran and Saudi Arabia. You have these conflicts. You have all these different countries. The alignment's not going to be there. But where the alignment is, is two things. The BRICS have, have sat back and watched the G7 be the dictator, so to speak, of global fiscal financial house. And they're tired of being beholden to the U.S. dollar. Case in point, my comment before. So the movement of coalition of the BRICS nations is more about how can we operate where we aren't beholden to the G7? And therefore, you know, in the case of the U.S. dollar, which is the reserve currency in the world, where we have to transact everything through the U.S. dollar. How can we get around that? And you're starting to see, for example, like, you know, no one talks about this, but one of the pillars of the petrodollar, the reserve currency of the world, U.S. dollar, was Saudi Arabia coming in as a cornerstone. Well, now Saudi Arabia is also transacting some of their oil in the Chinese renminbi. So you've already seen these movements, right? And one of the things I've mentioned many times in interviews is the autocracies versus democracies. And it's very, very clear. I mean, look at look at China's movement. I mean, that's an autocracy. Look at their alignment with China. Look at Saudi Arabia and China. I mean, Biden flew over a few months ago to see MBS, The first thing he talked about was wanting MBS to admit that he had ordered the execution of Khashoggi because their intelligence said said that. Well, the response from MBS's uh, associate was, well, you also said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. They didn't. You don't start a conversation off. And the the intent of him going over there was to try to get them to increase oil production to put downward pressure on oil prices because of the inflation fight in the United States. Two weeks later, Saudi Arabia and OPEC cut production by 2 million barrels. Don't increase, the cut. And then a week later, guess who flies into Saudi Arabia? President Xi. That's right. And he flies in, fly by with the jets with the the colors of the Chinese flag. And so you have to look at the shifts that are taking place. You know, the autocracies alignments opposed to democracies. Even in the Arab League, uh, about three weeks ago, MBS was on the podium. He was talking about how the Middle East, aka Saudi Arabia, they're going to surpass Europe in the next five years. So you have these movements taking place. And if you look at it, it's autocracies that are they're moving up on the podium, and they're shifting out of the U.S. dollar dependency or reserve
0: currency. Mm-hmm. The pageantry of Xi Jinping's arrival versus what what came for Biden—it's so telling and in a way shocking because that is a, a real shift in that very very important relationship that's been, I mean, seventy years in the making.
1: And I'm not saying that relationship's over. I'm just saying it's being diluted. That's what it is. Yes. There's realignments
0: yeah. taking place, right? With your look at macro and your approach to investing, what are the timeframes that you keep in mind? Because the cycles for precious metals and base metals are different to some degree, but with precious metals certainly are, it seems to come on and off, on and off. But that can be in, in a decade or so kind of thing. Can you talk to me about timeframes?
1: 2012 was the top of the precious metals last cycle, and they had QE1, QE2, and I was convinced at that time that you know because they were talking about QE3, I was thinking how's this going to work? How's the Fed balance sheet going to keep on going up? It's four and a half trillion at the time without something breaking. But they kept interest rates at zero for four years, and if you remember, the economy was dead for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden the, the economy t- started taking off because interest rates were zero. Asset appreciation created wealth effect, and the snowball effect of asset appreciation for free money got the economy and the engine going. And gold at that time you know, went from 1900, 2000 down to 1150. It was a terrible bear market. And I'll be honest, you know, I didn't see that one coming. I thought for sure gold's role was going to stay in that status, You know, given the risks, the fiscal risks moving forward. But again, the stock market took off, the economy took off. And so there are cycles, there's no question about it. Where we are now in the cycle is we've been in a macro trend for a long period of time. This time, the global debt is at levels that are just unsustainable. I mean, Jerome Powell keeps on saying, you know, the path we're on, it's unsustainable. Stanley Druckmiller, all these t- people talking about it. Jeffrey Gunlack, we're on an unsustainable path. Well, we are. And now you have the weight of the interest rates sitting on this unsustainable path. So I, more than ever before, believe that gold is actually in the early stages of actually establishing itself as a tangible, hard asset reserve currency. And so I think we're entering that cycle. And yet, and what gives me that much confidence in that is the Western world's really not paying attention to it. And the value proposition of the equities, you know, you ask Rick Rule and, you know, and many other people have been in the industry for a long period of time. We've never seen values like these especially relative to a gold price where it is. So there are cycles, I mean, listen, we have economic cycles, copper's a PhD in economics, and yet that's kind of being rewritten a little bit with the EV movement now too, because then it's a demand side difference. And then on the supply side, too, I mean, a lot of these mines have been in production for 30, 40 years. I mean, the Chilean mines are down at mining now at a quarter percent copper rather than three quarters of percent because they're so, you know, they're older mines. And there hasn't been big capital spends into those projects. So there's a supply side shock. So it's PhD in economic is now also being tilted because of demand supply side differences from the past. Complicated, right?
0: Very very. I want to discuss how you've run your business, and and I want to shift gears a bit to, to discuss that in the sense that with your investment advising and the clients that you represent and bring into to these opportunities, how have you grown your business in and around your thesis and your your macro look and the way you approach this?
1: Well, just like we've been speaking for the last a few minutes, I kind of paint the landscape as to where we are in investing. You've got to skate to where the puck's going to be. So. I'm painting the picture of where we are moving economically. And if if you were a client of mine two years ago, you would have been listening to me sounding the alarm bells about how valuation matrix in the US didn't make any sense. So I've been building a thesis and trying to educate people, partly because I want to protect their assets. We're looking at this real estate market that's been rolling over here. I mean, you start looking at the, the banks in Canada, for example, the average bank stock's down 30%. And yet a year ago, if you'd said to somebody that they should take profits in their banks, they'd be looking at you like, why? They're paying me great dividend yields. We've got a booming economy. I said, yeah, but you're looking where we are right now. You have to look at where we're going, right? And so what I offer to clients, a service to manage a portion of their portfolio. I recommend people should have 10% of their, of their equity investments in that, in metals and mining stocks. And the problem with metals and mining stocks is most people don't know how to, how to invest them. On that note, I mean, most people these days just buy ETFs on anything anyway. So what, what I try to do is educate people as to the importance of having this in their portfolio and the importance of having somebody who is a specialist in the space who can direct you into the, into the right companies. Because if you just buy the ETFs, you're just buying the underlying companies. And no better example of how poor ETF investing is, is the ETFs that went into the cannabis space. You know, US investors couldn't buy cannabis stocks because it wasn't legal in the United States, so they were buying the ETFs. And what people don't understand is an ETF is like an umbrella. Now, the rain hits the umbrella, and then whatever's underneath the um, umbrella gets sprayed into. That's how the investing goes into the underlying ETF stocks. So it's not, it's not PE or value discriminatory. It's whatever's under that umbrella. And so all this ETF buying into the cannabis stocks sprayed into a very finite amount of companies. All stocks like Tilray go to $260 a share. Today, it's $2. You look at Canopy Growth went to $70 a share. and Now it's 60 cents. So the, the ETF buying is a very risky way to approach a sector because all you're doing is buying the envelope or the, uh, the companies inside of it. And so what I try to explain to people is you want to be buying the best pedigrees in the sector depending on what your risk profile is. By the ETF, you can be buying companies that are higher risk, but they're just in that because of market cap. So I think it's important to educate people about the inefficiencies of ETS too. And again, a lot of people don't understand that. Like you go back to when digital was the buzzword in the United States in 2022. I remember listening to an analyst on CNBC talking about Pizza Hut and how it's training at 54 times P multiple. And the analyst was defending the P multiple because Pizza Hut was now moving into the digital world because you could do online ordering in that. So all of a sudden, the digital ETFs were buying into, it didn't make any sense. But again, the narrative drew the money flows into the ETFs It sprayed into the companies inside those ETFs. So they weren't discerning towards valuations. It was purely a money flow thing.
0: I'm wondering about how you approach or how you work with the companies that you invest in. And I'm curious because I think that you have the ability to be an influential investor and, and you take time to identify individual companies to put. Your clients and your own money into. How do you approach that? In fact, for our listeners who some who are you know CEOs and CFOs of mining companies, how do you approach that, and what should they know?
1: We have a bit of a, a mantra at Canaccord, and our mining team is sponsor, build, and grow. And so we seek out great assets with great management teams and, and help help them grow and unlock their value. And you know, I've had a number of instances. I mean, if anybody goes into my website, you'll see some of the track records of our success. Because again, being an equity investor, I can buy the equities. A lot of times it's either ETFs or funds that come into stocks. The stocks have to get to a certain criteria in terms of market cap or fundamentals before those financial instruments come into the stocks. So we'll see something coming along that is exploding in terms of growth or a resource and be able to buy it, knowing that eventually the ETFs are going to come in. It's going to reach a matrix of you know, $500 million market cap with, you know, $4 million of volume per day, whatever the matrix of those ETFs are. So we're constantly seeking out value propositions of assets. And that's challenging unto itself, especially with, you know, the geopolitical situations. I mean, look what's happening in Panama right now with the mining law that are being contested. I mean, the geopolitical risks are abundant everywhere in Canada and any place in the world. And so we seek out a basket of companies and mid tiers developers. Um, I don't do the grassroots exploration companies because that's a needle in a haystack. So, but I look for companies that are just extremely undervalued, that are well-managed and and become, in, in case of five of them right now, I think we're cornerstone investors of in five of the better development, small producer, mid-tier developers in our space right now.
0: Okay. What about engaging with management teams? And I asked this from a standpoint of, I think PubCo CEOs and their CFOs and IR pros sometimes neglect the potential of, of the buy side or of the sell side relationships that can come from somebody like Canaccord and yourself to be able to come in and help advise and bring them opportunities as well as capital. How can they engage with you better?
1: I mean, yeah, some of the principles I do business with. You know, I'm a, a financial partner alongside them. Uh, and, you know, I, again, I spend a lot of my time, I'd say I probably spend 80% of my time with the management teams, our analysts, our bankers, institutions, the street, you know, getting a, a pulse of what, of the feeling of everything is going on. And so I, I am an integral part of helping these management teams grow. And I say I, I mean we, I mean, you know, our Canaccord team, we have our research, we have our bankers and that, we have our institutional sponsorship. But, you know, we try to help them unlock their value. So the problem is there's not a lot of people like me in this country anymore. So it's all like a you know, company XYZ can go out and, and find 50 retail guys that become significant investors in their stocks because there's not a lot of people doing that anymore.
0: What's changed? Why are there not a lot of individuals like you anymore? And the reason why I ask is because I think it's a very crucial part to – both base and precious metals is in our economy is we need banking expertise. We need investment expertise to bring capital into the space. But that changed over the last 15, 20 years. What happened?
1: Oh, well, as I said earlier about the herd mentality, right? And the herd mentality for how many years chased other sectors. You know, we had the cannabis sector, we had the crypto, we had all these you know disruptive technologies and industries. We had the COVID play, so everyone chasing COVID stocks. And so if you really look at it, I mean, Canada is the mining capital of the world. I mean, Australia to a great extent too, but that's who we are. problem is, is we're beside the United States. You've got all this money flow that started chasing investment opportunities in the narratives of the sectors that unfold in the United States. And so That distracted from any money flows going into our sectors. And so there's been a vacuum of audience of people who have paid attention to this space. You talk to people that have been in the business for 30 years. They've never seen a market like ours where the audience is so small. Right. And so going back to what I was saying about, you know, 2000, 2002, and when that rolled over, all of a sudden people started looking elsewhere. I think we're going to have an investment climate where people are going to wake up and go, wait a second. Those investments aren't working anymore, and these ones seem to be working. And they're going to start looking into it more and more. I mean, like I said, gold's trading at two thousand dollars all time highs here, and nobody's paying attention to it. But when they do start paying attention, they'll start looking at the value proposition. I mean, I've got a number of my companies that are trading at, you know, three and a half four percent dividend yield, debt free. One company that's trading at a five times P E multiple that has a hundred million dollars U S in the bank, producing two hundred seventy five thousand ounces of gold. No one's paying attention because, again, the money flows are still thinking they're buying the dips on Coinbase and other stocks in the United States, right? Because that's what their muscle memory is. And so I think we're in that environment where people are thinking they can make their money back in those sectors. But I think they're learning in in the last two, three months, we're seeing this rollover that maybe that's not working. So when they realize that's not working, maybe they'll start to look at what is working.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. What about investment advisors and the industry. I'm curious on two levels. One about advice for investment advisors and in building their book in general, but then also moving into the precious metal space and how they can educate themselves on it. Because clearly, like you've got 35 years of experience. And I bet there's a lot of both retiring investment advisors and new investment advisors coming in who couldn't tell you the difference between gold and silver. So like, how do they educate themselves on, on the space that you've been so focused on?
1: First of all, you have to look back. That was then, this is now. We're in an environment now where you know the banks and wealth management, Okay, if you look at it, it's, it's all ETF and plug and play. I mean, the big banks, if you're an investment advisor at RBC, for example, you know, you're selling products of RBC. So it's not like they're stock pickers anymore. Everyone is an ETF or a product buyer. So now you have generic wealth management. And, you know, it is... That's yes, not to be critical, but that's just how people invest. People don't choose stock specifics nearly like they used to. And so that's one of the challenges, but I see that as a great opportunity for me, right? Because a lot of people are just going to buy the ETFs. So oh, I'll just buy the GLD ETF, right? But as I said to you before, when you're buying these ETFs, you're buying the, the companies underneath it. I maybe look at those companies underneath and go, okay, four of those are going to be poor performers because their fundamentals aren't that good, but they're in a market cap, they are in that ETF. So in my portfolio, they won't be part of my portfolio, right? So I would argue we can far outperform the ETFs. But for investment advisors, a lot of banks don't want you doing that. They want you just to be buying the products, right? So that's one thing about Canaccord is we have a platform here that's an independent platform. So you can run a business that can be a stock picker's business. But again, going back to investment advisors trying to navigate through the metals and mining space, it's extremely difficult. It's difficult for me because I can be in a country. All of a sudden there's a jurisdictional challenge that takes place. I mean, West Africa just had a coup in Niger and the noise made it very volatile. But the reality is, it's business as usual. But again, it's trying to navigate through that if you don't understand the industry and the history of that region is
0: extremely difficult. When looking back on your career, who have been some of the most influential people that have helped you learn and that, that have really been mentors to you?
1: Well, we mentioned Peter Brown, and he's the forefront because his culture that he created at our firm was second to none. It was a family, and the mining community was very, very big at the time. I remember the first time as an analyst, I went and saw Murray Pesham. That's a story unto itself. But, you know, there's so many people in the industry. And part of my education isn't just from the mining industry. A lot of it has to do with education from people like Stanley or Charlie Munger, you know, Peter Lynch went up on Wall Street. I mean, there's so many lessons to be learned about understanding. Because if you really look at precious metals, and I think this is really important, Precious metals is a derivative investment because of other factors, other geopolitical factors, economic, monetary factors. And so you have to understand macro and geopolitical to understand why precious metals should be part of your portfolio. That makes sense. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there in terms of who I read and who I learned from that are nothing to do with precious metals, but they help me understand why this sector is important to your portfolio.
0: Okay. I want to hear more about Murray Pesum, and I want to hear more about Peter Brown, but I'm going to ask a question about Ray Dalio and his work. I've been getting into his books about changing world orders and the debt cycles and so on. Do you follow along on what he he puts forward about the changing world order and debt cycles and so on? And what's your take on that?
1: I've read his books and I've listened to him many times. And, you know, as he says, if you don't own gold, you don't know the history of fiat currencies. And, you know, on that note, I mean, this is one of the things I say to people. Okay, you go back to 2000 and yeah, if you had a $100 US in, in your pocket or you had $100 worth of gold. Okay, what's the purchasing power of those two instruments today? I mean, a $100 back then would buy you what today? $15, if that. $100 of gold back then now is what? Sevenfold. And so fiat currencies over time diminish their purchasing power. And the reason they do is because of printing press and debt. And that's one thing gold doesn't have. I mean, you know, Bitcoin, not that I want to get into this conversation, but one of the things that defining factors of Bitcoin is a finite number and it has no debt obligation. Okay, and you can't print it. Well, gold's uh, supply has increased on average 2% a year the last 30 years. So it's not like it's increasing in supply. So Ray Dalio, listen, he's one person. Stanley Druckenmiller is another one I adhere to because, you know, he points out you know, the fiscal environment we're going into. And again, he also mentions the fact that you hold interest rates at zero for a 10-year period of time, you get mispriced assets. And I remember like a year and a half ago when we were at the top of our real estate bubble here in Vancouver, I was explaining to my son that, you know, what you're observing right now is two bad behaviors, investment. I said people are overpaying for assets because they're caught up in the frenzy. And in order to do that, they're over-leveraging because money was free in order to overpay for something. I said, those are two very bad behaviors.
0: Yeah. Drunk on cheap money. Fast forward to
1: today, what happened to your interest costs and what happened to asset prices? Asset prices really haven't started coming off yet, but there's no liquidity in the marketplace right now. My point being is that you have to listen and intake from as many sources as possible of people that you have respect. But also listen to the other side of the fence, too. I mean, you got to listen to people's argument. Everyone says, well, debt's been around forever, and why is it going to be a problem now? You know, the U.S. is the reserve currency in the world. And they're they're going to meet their financial obligations, et cetera, et cetera. But there's other factors coming at it, too. I mean, you've got the baby boom bubble now rolling over. So now you have pensions are going to be a burden on the taxpayer, right? Medical costs are gonna keep on going up. So the fiscal burden on governments is increasing at a time when interest rates are higher, and I would argue your tax receipts are going down as well. So that's a precarious position to be in as a government.
0: There's a lot at play. What I've been taking from Dalio's books is basically empires and their, their life cycles and how they go through it. And they basically get to a point, the same way companies do. They become too big, too old, too slow to move, to change, to adapt, too burdened by their legacy. And what we have here is a growing legacy of debt, which... The only way out of that debt seems to be more debt to try to pay off old debt and on and on and on. So plays into finding that safe haven. Pretty fascinating, man, but slow moving as well. It's slow moving because everyone
1: got lulled into this complacency. I mean, go back 16 months ago when your trades were at zero or 17 months, whatever. We had this conversation with someone then. They look at you like you were from another planet. Fast forward to today right. where all of a sudden now people are 16 months into it and they're kind of feeling, hmm, this is uncomfortable. They're not going to be looking at it like from another planet, but they also think it's going to it's transitory and it's going to you know interest rates are going to go back down and everything's going to be fine because every time there's been a problem, the government, the Fed either brought interest rates to zero or they QE'd or they give stimulus, right? So it's like nobody's had to pay the piper. And again, I'm not I'm not a doomsayer or anything of that. I'm just saying math doesn't work anymore, and so moving forward, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. What are you doing to protect yourself in this environment with what you know? And a lot of people are just thinking, oh, I'll just put it under the rug, you know, interest will go back down it would be fine. What if it isn't?
0: Well, yeah, then you need to have that 5 to 10% in your portfolio. You mentioned Druckenmiller, I think Buffett, Charlie Munger, you know, some of the greats. Any other things you focus and read on that you consume your information that, that informs you?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest things is this whole chess game taking place. I mentioned before our talk versus democracies and the brazen moves now. I mean, you know, four years ago China's moves were quite quiet. You know, they were behind the scenes, they were buying up assets around the world, financing ports and that. But you're hearing more and more narrative from them talking about how they're no longer going to put up with the US trying to suppress their supremacy. And they're now challenging that world order. And, you know, you look at some of the examples. I mentioned the one of Saudi Arabia. How about the one where the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan? Two days later, who moved in?
0: Sitting there meeting with the Taliban. So you look at
1: things like that. And again, behind the scenes, I'm sure China's messaging to the world that America abandons you, we're there for the long run. We're building ports, we're building schools. I mean, I remember listening to a, a representative out of Kenya and he made the comment that China comes in, they build hospitals and schools. America comes in, they reprimand us. And so you, you look at all the, and again, I mean, it's a dictatorship. It's a scary proposition of a society that's moving forward in dominance, but it's in their best interest to show the weaknesses of democracy and capitalism. And when you're a country now with $33 trillion in debt, that has been dependent upon foreign buyers of your treasuries, which are no longer turning up like they were. In fact, China has been divesting themselves of US treasuries and replacing it with gold by, by, again, the data shows that, then you
0: should be concerned. Yeah. Wow. That's the case for gold.
1: Like I said, you know, the Western world doesn't really think of it this way, but the three largest reserve currencies in the world are the US dollar, euro, and gold. Most people don't think of it that way. And gold is the only one that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. So if you're looking down the planet today and you were going to buy a basket of currencies, would you include that as part of your basket? I would say naturally you should. But because the narrative is so non-existent towards it in the Western world, no one's thinking about it. Or if you go back 30 years ago or 40 years ago, when you did a balanced portfolio, there was always a 5% weighting in gold. And that's why guys like Ray Dalio, who's been around the industry longer than I have, has always stood for having a 10% weighting in gold. Because if you don't own gold, you don't know the history of fiat currencies. And yet the mentality of today's investor is so short-minded and also complacent because they haven't had adversity.
0: That's true. Almost 40 years of a bull market. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Cam, we've already ripped through an hour. Any final thoughts for for our listeners, whether they be individual investors or management teams and public company CEOs looking to navigate these markets? What? of uh, Mining companies? or yeah, They can be mining companies or, you know, I think... Certainly, what you're you're discussing is applicable to every industry uh, that we have, and so uh, I'm curious. uh, Any final thoughts? Okay, well, to the mining industry,
1: I think it's so 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 important that the narrative uh, of what I've been talking about gets messaged because there is no narrative in our space, right? You know, I think it's so important. You know, and I've talked to a number of my mining companies I'm involved with is that to take time to explain why gold, why now. I know the world gold council has been making it and we even got into that, but that's, you know, I spent a lot of time with Randy Smallwood and what they've been doing at world gold council is game changing. And I think the next 12 months, we're going to see some real shifts in awareness about gold's role and, and how you can buy gold and then bringing gold into the 21st century digitized stable coins. But again, I think the messaging has to take place because we didn't touch about this, but one of the things I talk about all the time is narrative economics. Because the narrative is what attracts investors and then the S- investors buy the ETFs and that flows into the companies. The narrative economics is a dominant factor in today's investment world. And there is no narrative towards our space.
0: That's a fascinating observation. Yeah.
1: So we need the industry to stand up and talk about the narrative of the value of gold. If you go to India, it's a cultural possession of pride and ownership. It's a value. It's a banking asset. It's, it's a tangible asset that is integral to their society and yet here we have you know we have gold medals we have oscars that are gold and you know it's, it's as good as gold it's a gold standard all these cliches and anecdotes and that but no one thinks about Wait a second here when we say it's the gold standard well gold is a gold standard and if you look at fiat currencies run by governments that keep on ballooning our deficits and creating balance sheets that are unmanageable moving forward you know at what point do people think that maybe i should have some of the gold standard in my portfolio. Makes sense, right? But no one's thinking that way right now. The narrative's not there. So my message to investors is that it's something you should consider, but you need to deal with somebody that knows what they're doing. Because I explained the risks of ETFs. And you need somebody that knows how to navigate to put together a portfolio for you that's manageable given your risk profile as well. Because it's not that easy. It's a very complicated industry because it's global. You're dealing with jurisdictions it would be challenging. Business cycle risks. The list goes on and on and on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that your point that the the industry itself needs to start unifying with the narrative. And it doesn't have its narrative. Cannabis had its narrative. Crypto has its narrative. You know, all these industries do. But it's really interesting to see that mining and precious metals does not, yeah, for investing in precious metal companies. I mean, to your point, it is so complex, these these businesses and what they have to manage through and deal. And so knowing the teams, knowing the management, knowing the asset is so important and really interesting. As a final point, Cam, where can people learn more about Curry Metals and Mining and you and your group? The starting point is to go,
1: go into our website and just go into our profile and, and you'll get a better sense of what we do and our track record. And then, you know, from there, if you're interested, arrange a Zoom call. Uh, again, my client base is high net worth and family offices. So if you fit that criteria, please reach out and go into greater depth as a strategy. Because it's, like I said, you, it's very difficult to find somebody who can navigate this sector. In a world like today, you need, need a specialist.
0: Okay, thank you so much for taking the time. I enjoy it. I enjoy your perspectives on macro, on the environment we're in, and as well as the geopolitics and everything in around what you do. So I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, my pleasure. And you know, again, we could have gone into so many other things. We didn't even start getting into the Middle East and the complications of that. So again, down the line, love an opportunity to spend some more time with you, Corey.
0: Yeah, appreciate it, Cam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.